Welcome to the Digital Transformation of Business podcast, brought to you by Hughes On. Welcome to the podcast. We're here today with our usual crew, Chuck. Hi, how you doing? Curtis. What's up? And we have a special guest with us today, Carl Malone, product manager and leader for uh, media training at Hughes. Hey, how's it going? We're, uh, we're delighted to have Carl here with us today. We're going to talk a little bit about how training and learning are part of a digital transformation in any organization. And, you know, we've talked a lot about how digital transformation, you know, and it's a technology aspect, but honestly, at many times we find that there are things that are just changing in business. And so transformation, and that may become um, very important and very relevant as we start talking about training and learning. So anyway, Carl, welcome to the uh, welcome to the podcast. We're excited to have you here. Tell us a little bit about some of the things you've seen going on in the industry around training and learning. I'm actually pretty excited to talk about this because I had the opportunity, you know, here we are in the in the the fourth industrial revolution, the digital transformation. And I had the opportunity, I was working in higher education um, in the 90s, um, working on the, the digital revolution, you know, the third industrial revolution. And we did a lot of work with taking courseware and computer-based training and installing them in computer labs and kind of kind of changing the way we delivered that content. Traditionally, it was, um, you know, just classes about how to use a computer or how to type. But after a while, we had classes on history classes and, and psychology classes that were completely handled in the computer labs, kind of the entry-level stuff was all computer lab driven. And so it, it's neat to be here again, you know, a few years later, just to see how that uh, digital transformation has changed and how people are, you know, there's still some of the, th- the same things about just getting technology and digitizing our assets, but also now now here's a great time when the technology can change the way we actually interact with those assets and use those assets. I, I, I hate to use this example because it's so cliche, but you think about your personal transformation with your smartphone. So I can go to lunch, I can find a nice restaurant, I can take you know directions to that restaurant, have lunch, pay for lunch, and the whole time I'm doing that, I can still take an email from work, I can still text friends, you know, I can switch gears very very easily with this piece of personal technology but training still you know I go to work and I have to stop working to train so I have to quit what I'm doing I have to completely focus on the CBT or go to a physical classroom and train and so I think you know training still has a long way to go but there's some really cool trends in, in uh, training and learning right now that I think are really helping kind of build momentum behind that digital transformation well the great news there is is as a company looks at any kind of transformation uh, this technology, this capability, and maybe even culturally the expectation is that the company is going to provide that to their employees. Uh, Carl, you mentioned education, that you were uh, working with schools, setting them up with computer equipment and stuff. And we always talk about the transformation of business, but what about the digital transformation of education? How does that affect the future of business? You know, I hate to say kids, but kids coming in the, into the workplace today, they have a certain set of expectations about how technology should work. They expect to um, be able to interact with the, the data they want. They expect to be able to look for the things they want and be able to find them pretty quickly. And they find they actually have to kind of slam on the brakes a little bit and uh, kind of change their mindset and their expectations when they come into the workforce because the workforce just isn't set up for that. Um, if you take the example of, you know, everybody has their, their own personal device, but a lot of... Uh, a lot of workplaces don't want you to use your personal device. They want you to use the technology that they've provided, they've vetted, they've secured. So it can it can kind of it can really be challenging for for new people coming into the workforce to, to they have to slow down their expectation or lower their expectation of what technology they can use to do their job. I hear it all the time, you know, about the executive 
who comes into work and says, my kids can do this at home. You know, we're, we're ordering from our favorite grocer online and picking it up. Why can't I, you know, move product through, through in our company? But I think what you just pointed out is on the flip side of that, that that's frustrating to an executive. But you come out of college and you run into a brick wall of, hey, we don't do that here or we don't enable you to do that here. It's got to be horribly frustrating and, and uh, debilitating for the incoming employees. If you think about it, you know, I work on the marketing side of Hughes. And so, you know, Hughes is helping all these companies leverage technology to improve their overall customer experience by throwing all sorts of technology into stores, whether it's screens, interactive kiosks, guest Wi-Fi, beacons, all these things that we see and that Hughes is helping people leverage the best of breed technologies. These technologies only do so much if employees don't know how to use them. I was speaking at a conference last year, who's, and when I asked a question into the audience, I said, how many of you have rolled out these type of, you know, I gave an example of, say, a kiosk, right, in their stores. Probably half the crowd, they said, they, ra they raised their hands. And then I said, okay, now keep your hands up, but those people who have an effective training model to be able to get people to know how to use these things and leverage them, keep your hands up. Every single hand except for one had lowered it, which is very, very striking to me, which shows that you know marketing and training and learning need to figure out a way to align themselves. And that video of Curtis presenting is on YouTube. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. if you want to watch it. That's right. Hughes on channel. Subscribe <laughs> today. So Carl, what are some of the what are some of the ways? You know, you talked about how excited you were now that uh, you know this has kind of come around and for this next revolution that this technology exists what are some of the ways people are doing things that you've seen you know you've been working with customers consulting and helping them figure the ways out what's going on some of the hot trends we see right now are um, like virtual reality and augmented reality you know being able to um, take something I may have learned in a classroom but use a, an AR or VR tool to maybe enhance that learning or um, maybe use it as a reference tool while I'm on the job and I need a quick uh, a quick check to make sure I'm looking at the right part or I'm doing the right thing. Um, in chatbots, you know, everybody's run into a bot with tw in, on their Twitter account and, you know, being able to leverage that intelligence of a chatbot to kind of help people in the field as more of performance support, being able to answer questions quickly um, and kind of have some, uh, some nice responses that'll help somebody in the field who's in a pinch get some information they need quickly. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to, jump in here and just ask for one quick clarification you, know, you mentioned virtual reality and augmented reality maybe for the benefit of the audience and those of us are those not the same uh, they're not they're very closely related um, the virtual reality would be where I have a, a headset on you've seen the people in the malls who've been swinging their you know sw swinging swords at uh, invisible elves their entire vision field of vision is covered by a pair of goggles and their their entire reality is represented within those goggles and as they physically interact, where not physically, as they think they're physically interacting with the world that they see, you know, it updates and changes. Augmented reality is where I'll have a, a, a view of my world, but I can put a camera in front of it that'll overlay something else on top of that. So I'm using a live camera. You know, the, the super popular game Pokemon Go uses augmented reality. You know, the technology's easy. It's, it's very easy to do. It's just uh, finding a way to use it in an environment. Now, Apple has publicly said that they feel the future more heavily lies with the AR as opposed to the VR. But what have we seen in training? Which one out of the two do you see to be more successful or more widely adopted? Um, VR is exciting, but it's expensive. You know, I have to have a VR headset to do my training. I have to have a VR headset to do my reference work if I need to do a quick look and um, uh, to check back on something. Where AR 
you know, I can have an app on my phone and I can interact with an AR environment. So I, I, the people I've talked to and the, and the research I've done is VR is awesome, but it kind of limiting when you're trying to roll it out on a large scale because it can be so expensive. From, a, <clears throat> from the user standpoint that you just explained, is it also, I would assume it's more expensive to create a virtual reality experience than it is an augmented reality experience. Yeah, it can be very expensive. I was at a seminar uh, not too long ago, and they, one of the speakers talked about how they built a virtual environment uh, for miners, for miners in training. We're talking coal miners and miners of precious metals. And what they used to do is they used to send a lot of these trainees down to Australia, where they had a lot of mines and a lot of equipment, and they would do on-the-job training for two, three weeks. They built the same environment, the same equipment, in a virtual reality environment, and in the same amount of time, but for a fraction of the cost, these trainees would interact virtually with this equipment. They would be able to fix things, solve problems, walk around, get underneath, get under the hood of these machines, and learn almost as well as they did previously in the actual mine environment. So I thought that was a really kind of cool example of how this technology can be leveraged to to save money. I mean, we're talking a huge reduction in training costs. Well, and it's you, you could actually do simulations. So if it's not working, you know, you, it's easy for you to set up a simulation of something that's broken and let that individual interact in VR to try to f- troubleshoot it live rather than just learning about a piece, you know, troubleshoot it. You can put all kinds of scenarios in front of that user too. So it's, it is a very powerful tool. So at the risk of sounding like, uh, you know, the company's CFO or uh, some, you know, putting a wet blanket on some of this cool VR and AR and stuff, let's talk for a minute about what um, people are likely to be doing today. You know, as, as recent as 10 years ago, General Motors was training their Mr. Goodwrench technicians by uh, video broadcast out of Detroit. So the engineers, the men and women who designed the vehicles and who, um, you know, knew the intricacies of all the engines and things would go into a garage, they'd lift the hood and they would start instructing. And there were cameras there and sitting in the dealerships across the nation, these uh, local technicians were getting to ask questions and see the work done. So better than a book, better than reading about it, um, they were able to interact live with these instructors. Do we still see that kind of behavior going on, and is that kind of a stepping stone onto what will become, you know, more virtual and and uh, more digital? Well, we definitely see video. Um, video is never going to go away, and the the uses you said are video on demand. Video is still very, very part, much part of the the digital transformation. You know, I, I mentioned the the hot ones like AR, VR, uh, interactive video based learning is definitely in the top ten of of hot trends right now, and as a matter of fact. Um, E-Learning Guild did a survey uh, at the very beginning of this year of, the, of their members. It was a, a fairly limited pool of a couple thousand users, but it was illustrative, I think. In 2009, the number of people who were creating video for, for training content was about 43% of the poll base, and they did it again um, this year, or end of last year, excuse me, and it was about 92%. Of their of their users were using video uh, for training content. It's so easy to create, so easy to reuse. It, it's it's it, video is 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 so amazing when it comes to training. So I have a question, you know, because you know there there are still a lot of organizations out there that are doing the majority of their training is still paper based. Sometimes video can be daunting, right? A lot of people look at well, video is going to consume a lot of my manpower. It's going to cost a lot. So. Maybe just help us and the audience understand a little bit more about how simple it is to create video and be able to use it that way. You know, I think 
I think maybe five years ago, people were afraid of video. There, the standards weren't quite as solid as everybody knows them today. H.264 is, is an H.265, very well accepted um, web standard. You can, you know, any browser can access these types of content. And more and more, you know, the, the commodity, the, the camera technology is becoming so inexpensive. And that, that, in that same poll, that eLearning Guild poll I mentioned earlier, 40% of people creating content for their businesses is creating it using a smartphone. You know, less and less people are having to have these big dedicated camera rigs. It's it's less daunting. It's less scary. Anybody can create a video. Anybody can um, to use free tools to edit it. Um, it's just diving in and do it one or one or two times, and um, I, th- I think they get over that fear. You know, I was um, spending some time talking with Elliot Maisie a year and a half or so ago, and we were talking about executive adoption of video because getting the message from the chairman's office out to the front lines, you know, whatever she has to say or her her explanation of the vision of the company and things is so, so important. And Elliot made a comment to me that seems obvious in retrospect, but really hit home. And that is we have to convince these executive leaders that it's not, as you say, not daunting. It's not difficult that they don't have to give up four hours out of their day to get a 15-minute message done. And, you know, recently I've been thinking about that. Um, I purchased a thing on Amazon uh, over the weekend. It's a little tripod, and it comes with a little Bluetooth start and stop button. So I can put my iPhone um, or any smartphone, really, squeeze it into this little tripod, set it in front of me, and I have in my hand the stop and start button with, you know, it's just a Bluetooth uh, device. So now, boom, I can click record and click stop, and I'm pretty much there. You know, as you said, there's tools to edit it, but even... Don't worry about editing, you know. Do a couple of takes, take the one you like, and get it out there. And you've mentioned on some of your earlier podcasts about some people are, are unwilling to give up control of their content. You know, they don't want to, they're so worried about the way the content is created, they forget what the content's being created for. So if you just kind of, and the expectation of users coming into the you know, into the workforce today, they have a much different expectation for video. It can't be as formal. It can't be, sometimes if it's too good looking, they don't trust it. They just want something more casual and more off the cuff. Yeah, more uh, real, we were talking about this the other day, just in yeah. the editing styles. It's, hey, listen, don't, don't try to, don't try to smooth it out. Just keep it so it looks like it was done on an iPhone, you know, at the moment. It was, it was real. I think we learn a lot from the YouTube personalities that have a lot of followers. And they're mostly self-produced. They might have one person helping. But a lot of the people who have 20 million followers have a camera, a microphone, maybe a light or two. And they're hit and record and they're uh, doing minor edits. But at the end of the day, the viewers see this is a real person walking down a real street in an apartment telling me what he or she is thinking about. And there's something to that, that realism. No, I think if you're an executive leader, um, you know, I've said it a thousand times, get that message from, you know, from your heart into theirs, but let them just see how real you are. You know, you be sitting on the edge of your desk, be standing outside the company headquarters, be in one of the stores standing next to, you know, the store manager and talking about this new product line that we're launching here on this new fixture that's going to be showing up in all your stores. I think it just... You know, it, it's no longer that, oh, he or she sits up in the ivory tower and doesn't really know the reality of our day-to-day. It's, hey, no, 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 I'm going to bring it right down here, and I don't need a 12-person crew to follow me around in order to do that. Well, you know, this takes me down two paths. The first one is, um, you know, just-in-time support. We live in an age of Google. You know, I, I, I need to know how to do this. I Google it or I YouTube look up, and, and I get right to the, to the video piece or to the explanation of what I want. The second is user-generated content. I just figured out how to do this 
quicker. So I filmed myself. I put it up on the company's intranet. And now my peers at 250 other stores can take advantage of, you know, the knowledge that I just gained on purpose by accident, however. And in today's world, today's, um, you know, population base, they don't even expect to be compensated for that information. It's that somebody else saw it, liked it, and started to do what they're doing is is compensation enough. So I, I think extracting knowledge from the field by, by these rough cut videos, you know, is an awesome way for an organization to take advantage of it. Well, and I, I mean, I, I'll tell you a real world example just yesterday. But I unfortunately ran into my mother-in-law's car yesterday, which about the worst possible person you can hit in the world. I mean... So in any case, I... Although she's a lovely woman. She is a very lovely woman. I got to see firsthand how easy it is to look at this type of video and consume it and, and reassure myself. So I was feeling pretty crappy about having run into this car, only to go on to carparts.com and find out that I can buy a replacement for the part on my car that was broken. And in less than five minutes, I can install it with a single Phillips head screwdriver with two screws. And it was all done with this guy. The, the resolution couldn't have been better, any better than maybe 720p. It was in a video that was linked through their website from just one of their stand, one of their customers showing, hey, just so you know how easy this is, here's how you do it. And I guarantee this guy didn't get compensated for it. And I'm now better for it. I'm not, long, I'm not feeling like crap that I have thousands of dollars of repairs because I did take my car to the Kia dealership yesterday to ask how much that repair would be, 600 bucks. I bought a part and I can get five minutes and it's going to cost me 50 bucks. And so it's all because how easy it was to take that video and post it. And I think that depending on the size of the organization, your communication and training strategies can can include both approaches. The user-generated, quick and easy, unpolished, taken with your phone, no equipment, done in 10 minutes, and then the more polished studio productions. I mean, I think there still is uh, a need for that in some organizations. We know some of our retail customers have entire studios. I think that sometimes you need to count on professionalism. So I think there's a there's that choice to be made sometimes. Um, if your CEO gets up and talks about major layoffs or uh, big cuts, something very heavy, something very important, something that's going to be viewed by everybody, something that might go out into the public, that might need to be a little bit more serious in nature when it comes to the camera and the camera angles, the lighting, and the way that he presents himself or she. That's a good clarification. It really is. I think you know, you want to be you want to be sensitive to the subject matter and the audience on, on whether or not it's you know again quick and easy, fast, or if it's a more polished and production. But <clears throat> but again, and we've said it a couple of times here, making it look really really polished and and well produced is no longer as expensive. You know, you're not buying an Avid system anymore. You're loading a piece of software on your laptop and getting that same quality, um, and I think that's amazing. I think it's awesome. Yeah, and a lot of that, another one of the trends for 2018 and beyond is content curation, you know, making sure your content is relevant, make sure it's targeted to the right audience because that audience, internal or external, is changing constantly. So you can't just shoot something and let it sit in your training library for 10 years. You have to keep working through your content, tuning it, and making sure it's, it's right for the right audience. That brings up a very, very good point. How are organizations dealing with that? Are they, I mean, are they looking to some form of, 
analytics or something? How are they deciding when a piece of content needs to be updated or how, what are they doing? So the, the easy part is if it's a product video or something that's very time sensitive, you know, that, that's an easy one. You just, you just need to replace that video. In a lot of cases, you will need some type of analytics behind it so you know that you're targeting the right audience and they're actually consuming the content and, and responding to it correctly. You know, I've seen some of the benefits and some of the capabilities of your product of media training, um, and I understand you can actually go in and look at it and say, oh, my goodness, they're watching the first eight minutes but not the last seven minutes. You know, we're dropping off and so forth. Um, is that beneficial to the, the training instructors and the people creating the content? Absolutely, absolutely beneficial. Any any visibility we have, because they, they're not watching the users. They don't know how the users are consuming that content. And our ability to track when users are dropping off um, is useful and our ability to add uh, assessments in there to make sure the user is still paying attention and still interacting with the content are very valuable tools. So this transformation absolutely affects the the frontline employees. But what about training the leadership? What about training up and coming leadership executives even? I think I think a little of that, Chuck, is getting them comfortable with this because let's let's acknowledge that leadership generally is going to be a generation older than maybe some of the uh, the employee base let's get this let's get this leadership branch or this leadership layer if you will comfortable with the idea that this digital learning and this capability is there um, let's get them excited to use it as a learner let's get them excited to use it as a mentor um, as a trainer uh, you know again <clears throat> I've seen examples uh, you know several of the retail chains in there today are in the market today have what they call huddles before each of the shifts well, the huddle in the morning is usually the most informative because there was all the overnight information that came flowing into the store manager. Store manager's there first thing in the morning. Second shift and third shift, their huddle's a little less just, you know, there's just not as much there. They don't get the benefit of. But if you take the store manager first thing in the morning, they do the recording for the huddle, then second shift and third shift get the same benefit first shift had. So I think to, to training your leadership and some things there, they certainly should be looking at this as a way to learn themselves, but we need to get them comfortable using the technology as well. So I'm a, uh, I'm a corporate leader. Uh, we're getting ready to implement a new system. We'll just go with a new system. Uh, what, what, do we, what do we say to the audience? What are some of these milestones or checkboxes or things that they should start to do to prepare themselves and to take advantage of training and learning, training and learning services? I love the question, and really, to me, as a receiver of that information from the, whether it's the boardroom or the executive or the district leader or whatever, I have to really go through a checklist of three things. What is the message? How is it going to help me? And how is it going to help me better serve the customers? And because that, that to me, is critical, because if it doesn't, if it's not relevant to me, number one, the message falls on deaf ears. Number two, the message didn't do it, didn't reach its intended audience anyway, and therefore, what was the point of it? Therefore, I think that's probably the checklist that we need to make sure when you're planning to launch a new product, you have to take that into consideration is take the CEO hat off, off take the CEO hat off and put the apron on, put the front frontline apron on and really start to say, okay, how is this message going to impact me? Okay, so you just gave me some very, very good checklist items on the content creation, right? Let's let's make sure that we put together some content that tells them why it's going to benefit, how it's going to benefit, why it's good for them. Um, then I would say the next thing is you need to have some sort of a methodology or some sort of a plan in place where you say, okay, 
we want frontline associates to go through this much training before we do this, before we launch it, before we initiate it, before we introduce it. Then we want second line managers and, and leaders to be able to go through this much. And then we're going to make this much uh, information available as just-in-time sales support and assistance, just-in-time job aids, things like that. So I think those are some of the things that I think are, um, you know, our leadership and people who are getting ready to go through any kind of a transformation. To be perfectly honest, if we were simply moving our location from one spot to another, uh, I would want to have some training so people knew what to expect. If we were bringing out new products, if we're bringing out new systems, then I absolutely want to have this kind of information there for them. Well, that's, that's part of the employee engagement cycle you've been talking about for a long time is communication, um, recognition, and growth. Communication is super, super critical to any, any change in an organization. I have another question. LMS isn't what it was five years ago. So I want to kind of get your perspective as what, how is LMS, the term, evolving for 2018? And really, where do you see LMS or really just learning systems in general, say, 2021? You know, L- LMS, the, the concept of an LMS, uh, I, I don't see it changing too much. But how it's used, I see changing a lot. You know, there's a lot of um, components of the digital transformation, social learning, gamification, some of the things that might take place outside of a traditional LMS. A more important thing for an LMS to be able to do is to be able to be part of a training ecosystem, not necessarily be the sole piece. Uh, I think it's unrealistic for an LMS to be the only thing. It needs to be able to interact um, with other components, be able to accept data from outside sources, be able to contribute data to external sources as well. So I think an LMS will always be a critical component of making sure the users see the right content, the right training is tracked, and and assessments, and all those things that LMSs uh, do very well. But I I think it's just a small, critical piece, but it's not the only piece in a a transformed training environment. Now, going beyond the required training, the training, the compliance, the, the training that everybody must take, what about the training, or maybe this is more of a communication thing, but what about the training that is optional? that's perhaps highly beneficial, but it's not required by the employer for the employees to consume. Is there a, a space for that? And what would be the, uh, the approach when it comes to providing more training than is required? Well, you know, a part of that employee engagement strategy is growth. And it's not just being able to do your job better, but helping you be a better person as well. You know, maybe there might be things outside of work that that learner um, or that, that worker is interested in doing or interested in pursuing and an environment that can help contribute to not only just his work goal, but his personal goals as well. I think that it boosts that employee's engagement. It's going to all the benefits that come, come from that. You see companies that will offer uh, photography classes or pottery classes, cooking classes, things that don't necessarily pertain to anyone's job within the company, but they're highly beneficial for morale, maybe for developing skills that may come in handy in a roundabout way on the job, right? Yeah, and we, we actually got a notification in the mail today from our organization that we have some new courses available for our personal enrichment. They might, they don't contribute directly to my role in the organization, but if I want to learn some new things, um, some, some new skills that may contribute or may not, uh, they're, avail- they're available to me, and I, and I appreciate that. How does, how does training help in, in recruiting? When it comes to hiring, does training play a part in that? I read recently that in a survey of a bunch of new hires, uh, one thing that was repeatedly mentioned was training. A great example of this is when I was fresh out of college, I, had, I was working for DeWalt Power Tools, and I had to call upon many, many different Home Depot and Lowe's stores, and I knew absolutely nothing about power tools. I'm the son of a musician and an investment banker, 
So, you know, I absolutely knew nothing. The training that they had was absolutely amazing. We, they, they, they did fly us all into Baltimore where Black, Black & Decker was headquartered, but the training was never sitting in a classroom. The, cl- the training was sitting there and looking at re- using all of these real-world applications for all these different power tools that when, you know, John Doe, the contractor, comes into a store, he can, I can actually have an intelligent conversation with him having never built a house, having never changed a lug nut on a car. I can still apply the right knowledge, and so therefore it helps me feel like I'm actually making a better contribution to the company. Before I was in this industry, I was in the theme park design industry, of all things. And when I first got hired on to this particular theme park company, I was feeling overwhelmed. I was way in over my head. I was There was no way I was going to be able to, to produce the kind of design work that was being produced by this department. In this interview process, they repeatedly reassured me that most of the skills that I will need for the job will be acquired on the job. It was something that really helped me make my decision to come to this company because I thought, okay, I didn't learn those things in college. I didn't learn these, those things in previous jobs. And they're going to allow me plenty of time to learn the things that they want me to learn. It's not going to be required on day one. Yeah, it's the old uh, 70, 20, 10 rule. 70% of what you learn in a job is learned by doing. 20% is socialization, you know, mentoring, and, and 10% is actually learned in a, in a classroom. So you're absolutely right. You're going to learn most of what you know on the job doing it. You know, there, when you start to talk about, and Carl, you just touched on it with your 70, 20, 10, the, that 70% part is so critical. Uh, and one of the things that I have seen in industry training and stuff is the idea of tasks. So I learn a little bit watch a short video, two, three, four, five minutes at the most, then I'm sent out to do a task. Maybe it is to mimic what I just saw in the video, maybe it is to watch somebody, maybe it's a little of both. I come back, I mark that task done, then I move on to the next. And I think that's critical, critical that people remember that as part of a training and learning curriculum or or plan. The only other thing that I'll say, and I think we've kind of alluded to that there's an expectation coming from the incoming workforce, but no amount of video, no amount of technology, no amount of um, actions and reactions and so forth will work if the learner is not motivated to learn. Okay, so culturally, you need to set the standard in the interview process, in the onboarding process. We here at Company XYZ are constantly looking to improve ourselves. So not only will you expect us to help you grow as part of that you know, employee expectation, but we, the company, expect you to get out and find ways to make yourself better at the job that we've asked you to do and the career that you're looking at, at uh, fulfilling. So, Mike, as a leader of many people, what's your perspective on an employee coming to you saying, hey, I want to learn X, Y, and Z. It's going to cost some money. It's going to take some time. How do you feel when somebody comes to you and, and asks? Well, first of all, in every budget cycle of every year, I always try to place dollars in there that will be expended on employees sharpening the saw is the term that I use. Now, when, when an employee comes to me with a request, the first thing I'm going to look at is how closely does it relate to the job they're doing today? The second thing is how closely does it relate to a natural extension, advancement, or movement in the, from the job they're in today to something you know, further along in their career. And if it really doesn't fit in either of those, then we take a look at the cost versus just kind of an opportunity to give an employee a benefit. You know, speaking of motivation and Daniel Pink's um, 
book, Surprising Truth, about what motivates us, you know, there's those three major factors, autonomy, mastery, and purpose. You know, those are the things we have to give our employees so they feel like they're in control of their own destiny and actively contributing to something that they clearly understand and believe in. Yeah, because if they don't, they're going to be looking for the door. That's true. They're certainly not going to get any value out of it. You're not going to get any value from them taking it. Well, I think that's uh, that's been a really good discussion around the importance and the use of training and learning when your organization is going through any type of transformation, whether it's digital or otherwise. We want to say a big thank you to Carl Malone for joining us today. Thank Thanks you, for Carl. having me. Thank Thanks, you. Carl. And as always, to my cohorts, Chuck and Curtis, it's been a fantastic discussion. We look forward to your feedback in the audience. Please leave us a comment, give us a rating, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you very much. Thank you.